Again, good morning. We will now call the Richmond City Council budget work session to order. And uh, we have five presentations today, uh, non-departmental, citizen service and response, Department of Finance, Department of Human Resources, Department of Procurement. Uh, we will hear presentations from each of those departments. Um, council members will pose their top two to three questions. Any additional will get to staff so that we can get responses back. And then if there's time remaining, there'll be opportunity for comment. Madam Clerk, if you would call uh, and provide the evacuation announcement. Yes. Yes, Madam President. Upon activation of the emergency alarm signal, all persons should immediately exit the building. Please use the exit to the left or right front of council chamber or the east-west stairway outside the rear doors of the chamber. Do not use the elevators or the escalator. After exiting the building, proceed to the assembly area located in the parking lot bordered by Clay 8th and 9th Streets. Citizens and employees should assist visually and hearing impaired visitors with exiting the building. Madam President, for the record, you do have a quorum of counsel. Thank you. The first presentation uh, will be non-departmental. It's just discussing and presentation. Oh, I saw, I'm sorry. No, we do not. I do apologize about that. I thought Mr. Jones yes. said it came in. We do not have a quorum. Mr. Brown. Good morning. My name is Jay Brown. I'm the director of the Department of Budget and Strategic Planning, and I have one of my staff members, Ms. Lauren Kirk, and we will give a very brief overview of the non-departmental budget for FY20. If you recall, some of the major highlights in non-departmental was discussed at the March 12th session, and we will reiterate that today in terms of some of the major changes. Um, you also note that um, nearly 80% of non-departmental remain flat relative to the FY19 or the FY20 biennial budget, and we will now begin to go over some of those major changes. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Madam President, members of City Council, I'm Lauren Kirk with the Department of Budget and Strategic Planning. I'm going to briefly review some of the changes within the non-departmental budget. Non-departmental increase by approximately $3.9 million, or 4%. And council staff has performed an analysis of those overall changes by category. So I'm going to highlight some of those major contributors to those changes. Within the administration and finance category, the overall change is an increase of 150000 The employee salary adjustments of $1 million were reduced as those dollars are now a part of the agency's personnel budgets. The general fund contribution to DIT was reduced by approximately 800000 based on the budget that was submitted by DIT. The MetroCare program was reduced by 350000 This is not an elimination of this program. Rather, Public Utilities has available funding in this program and did not seek an appropriation in fiscal year 20. The contribution for tax relief for the elderly and disabled has increased by $1.9 million. This supports additional investment towards this effort as well as the proposed increase in tax rate and Ordinance 2019-029, adopting the expansion of the tax relief program. 250000 is included for payment of other post-employee benefits. This is reported in our CAFR and is a financial best practice. Within the economic and development category, the overall change is an increase in $3.9 million. I'm sorry, $3.1 million. 
The contribution for Affordable Housing Trust Fund has increased by $1.9 million. This supports the shared priority of increasing affordable housing alternatives within the city. An increase of 965000 for GRTC to expand routes, primarily in the east end and south side, and to be more equitable within the city. Within the education category, the overall change is an increase of 99000 Slight decreases for the contribution to J. Sergeant Reynolds based on the updated request received from J. Sergeant Reynolds. Middle School Renaissance has received an increase of 100000 to support after-school and out-of-school programming at Albert Hill Middle School. Within the human services category, the overall change is 485,000. As you have all heard from our mayor, the city of Richmond has the second highest eviction rate in the country. This increase is included in the contribution to home, specifically for the Commonwealth's first eviction diversion program. The detailed analysis by council staff will show any additional minor changes. Most items, however, have reflected as in last year's biennial budget. At this time, myself and other staff are present to answer any of your questions. Thank you. Council members? Mr. Angelesto. Thank you, and, and thank you for covering uh, the non-departmental. If I may, um, I did have a couple of questions. As it relates to um, GRTC, I understand that we're scheduled to give them an additional just under a million dollars in subsidies. Um, taking their annual subsidies to over $16 million. And I'd like a little bit more of a breakout as to what the city's $16 million is covering because in FY18, I believe, or could have been, no, I think it was FY18, we uh, approved the Pulse, and the Pulse opened in October of 20. No, June of 2018. <clears throat> so that would be reflective in the fiscal year 19 revenues. Um, and my understanding was that the Pulse was, continue, was supposed to continue to uh, generate higher revenues, higher ridership. How much are we seeing coming back to GRTC from state and federal uh, dollars based on ridership? Because that should increase their subsidy from those two entities. And therefore, what, why is the city being asked to increase its support? <clears throat> and what is the future of the VCU uh, uh, relationship? And frankly, if it's VCU pays less um, to get less service, I think the city council should seriously consider why we're allowing VCU to continue to operate a competing transit system in downtown Richmond to take riders off of something that we are subsidizing to the tune of $16 million. Um, so I would like a little bit more clarity on that. The other one that I ask um, for Greca. Greca is um, basically our contribution that we receive all hotel lodging tax, transient lodging tax. We therefore transfer it to Greca, um, but it's my understanding we are now more than covering our debt service, so we should begin to see a rebate. Where is the rebate showing up? The rebate um, is showing up in the city's general fund revenues, and we can actually get you that exact amount um, and the account code where that rebate is budgeted. Okay. 
So it, it, it's not necessarily tied to the non-departmental here. Correct. Correct. We do have to pay the total amount for our lodging taxes, and then we would get a rebate. Yes, sir. Correct. So if you could provide us what the net would be so that we can see Absolutely. that and what we're getting back into the general fund, I think that would be um, so very helpful. Uh, well, you can ask that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. And then lastly, with HOME and the additional dollars that HOME is receiving, it's my understanding that that is for a um, eviction diversion initiative. I thought that there was legislation at the state level to create eviction diversion, but I didn't think it had passed. And I don't know what this funding is and how it's tied to what the state legislation was that failed. And I see a representative from home who may be able to speak to that. Yeah, thanks. I kind of wish we'd picked a slightly different word for the program when we were th talking about it last fall. Uh, the, the state legislation did pass, but it isn't effective until 2020. And there's some very big differences between what the mayor has proposed uh, and what you're seeing in this budget and the state program. Uh, in a nutshell, the state program says everybody has to get together and talk about whether something can be worked out. Uh, and so that kind of provides the opportunity for a landlord and a tenant to work out their differences. This program would provide some resources to be able to address the back rent. So in a lot of ways, this is the only way you're actually going to get to some kind of resolution uh, is by setting up this eviction diversion program. So they're very different. Uh, this one would be effective this summer. Uh, and provides actual resources and the actual ability to settle those cases. Uh, and we think with this investment by the city that we'll be able to reduce evictions by about 500 next year. Uh, so in a lot of ways, this is a very cost-effective way to avoid a lot of the harms that happen to the city that you all see you know, in every other line item of the budget um, by making this initial investment. Thank you. And, and do we have a one-sheet on the program and, like, who would qualify and how much could they receive? How frequently can they receive funds? Do we have all of that on a one sheet? Um, some, I do. I, I can get it to you. Um, my name is Heather Chrislip, and I am a resident of the second district and president and CEO of Housing Opportunities Made Equal. Um, we have set up, we want to make sure that this program folds within the state opportunity, so you're, you're doing it all at once. You're taking advantage of both opportunities. What we, we've modeled this on two programs that exist, one in Durham, North Carolina, and one in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, and in the initial year, what we think we'll set up is the only issue at uh, stake needs to be the difference in rent, so no other landlord-tenant conflicts can be involved. Uh, the city, or this program, would uh, make available about 50% of the, the deficiency. Uh, and the tenant would need to come up with 25% up front and then have a payment plan for the additional 25% uh, that's owed. Uh, you cannot use it more than once every other year, so about a two-year window. Um, and there are a couple others that I can give you the one-page sheet on that, that lays out. Th that's the initial way that we're going to uh, address this. Uh, we also, we did a study where we had an intern sit in evictions court to get at the data about how much we're actually talking about. Uh, and we found that the average eviction in Richmond, and this would have been in July of last year, the average eviction was over a thousand bucks, and so, or you know, right around it was a thousand and eight dollars. So we're talking about you know probably investing about five hundred dollars per eviction to to stop it. 
Um, and so that's, those are some of the contours that I think it's important for you all to understand. Great. Thank if you. If you would. It, oh, I'm sorry, Madam President, but it sounds like we would need an ordinance to establish this type of a grant program. Um, I don't know, um, but I would like maybe not during the budget work session today, but perhaps we can get a bit more uh, thorough details on this so that we can ask more questions at an OD or some other meeting. And I was going to ask um, Heather if she would make sure that we get that information to Megan Brown so that it can be disseminated to all staff members so that we can have uh, further conversation. Thank you. Ms. Gray? Um, Well, I just wanted to, while you're still up, ask a couple of questions because what I'm seeing in those courts are the numbers are being driven with public housing evictions. So... um, and that's based on income already. So if someone is already struggling paying that income-based rent payment, how would they pay you back and stay up on their rent? And I know that's a deeper question, but I just don't want to throw money at an issue that's going to continue to be an issue. And right. we're going to see people evicted eventually anyway. And we're talking about raising taxes to fund a program for people not to be evicted that may eventually. And I'm not trying to right. throw throw mud on a, an idea, but I've had friends who called for help, and you help them, but they're back in that same situation. It's sure. a cycle. I've got a, a, a quick answer for that. I mean, you're obviously right that often this is a money problem. It's not a structural problem. Um, the, the one way we're trying to address that, the, the whole point here is just to skim off those for which evict- an eviction is going to be the cause of poverty. I mean, often we see, and we see this in our foreclosure prevention program, too, that we've operated for two decades. You know, it's a one-time bump in the road often. You're right. There are some people who've lost a job or there is a disability or something chronic where, you know, a one-time payment is just kicking the can down the road. Uh, the one way we're trying to get around that and, and have this go towards people who would otherwise be sustainable, but there's been a medical bill or there's been a car that broke down, is that they will have to they have to sit down with a housing counselor, and that's part of what these resources would 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 support, uh, and go over a budget. Uh, have financial literacy training. That's part of the program also. But also they have to swear before the judge as a part of the settlement that they have this, the ability to sustain their rent payment if we can address the deficiency. Um, and so we're, we're trying to build that in, um, in that you know, we're, we're trying to address the pool of people where you know, if, if they could just get this one break, they'd be able to be back on track. So they will have to talk with a counselor about their current financial situation, uh, and then they will have to swear before the judge that, you know, they, that they have continuing income and being able to demonstrate that they'd be able to, to pay the rent going forward. And, and I get that. I mean, but I don't know a mom who wouldn't swear before a judge in lieu of their children being put out on the street that they were going to be able to do it and really mean it because they plan on picking up some extra hours or doing some... You know, it's just... I I hear you. This is a... Yeah. I just... I want to make sure that we are not prolonging the inevitable for some folks and putting a burden on taxpayers to pay that when an eviction might be inevitable. And I've worked in the field, so I'm not sure. No, I, I hear you. 
Um, I think the added benefit, you're right. Uh, I mean, swearing before a judge should be taken seriously, right? So that is, is one way to assure it. Sitting down with a housing counselor and having to go over your finances is another way. Uh, you know, and that's a process we're very familiar with. We do it with and how? all of our homeownership clients and with all of our foreclosure clients. Um, but how long would it take for somebody to even get in to sit down with you? Because so the way, yeah, the way we've set it up is that uh, you're made available for the program on the day of your court date, uh, and then payment won't be made until you've sat down with the counselor and done uh, financial literacy education. So if I'm hopefully within a week is the way we we've set it up because we can't delay the payment to the landlord so long that they are unwilling to participate in the process. So the landlord has to be willing. Both parties have to be willing. Yes, and that's where I've seen. When I try to intervene and call on people's behalf with Richmond Redevelopment and Housing, they're, they're, they're never willing. willing to delay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can tell you that we have assurances from our RHA that they're willing. But, I mean, you're right. We aren't going to know where the problems are um, necessarily until we have the opportunity to try. And you're pretty confident that you're staff is sufficient to... Yes. So it, within this proposal is the addition at Central Virginia Legal Aid for one position that would coordinate all of the pro bono attorneys that will serve as the third-party mediators in trying to settle the cases. So this money would be paying for staff? No. It's about $300,000 that will go to address the, the back rent. And then it is about 185 in two-and-a-half staff positions. Uh, one at Central Virginia Legal Aid and one and a half at home. One to administer the fund, kind of a, an accountant type, and one that would be the, an additional housing counselor uh, that would see the clients uh, and provide the financial literacy. Okay, thanks. All right. Thank you. Other questions or comments? I have questions about the, in general, not about this program. Okay. Um, if that's okay. okay. Yes. Um, there were several, like the Asian Chamber of Commerce um, agencies that were added to non-departmental that were not given the application this year. Are they included? If they receive funding in the biennial budget, then they are still included. So Unless what was the application process this year? Because several said they automatically got the applications because they were already in the said budget. But the ones who were added did not get that application. We only did an application process last year, which was the biennial budget process, which asked entities to submit a request for both FY19 and FY20. And as a part of the adoption of the FY19 and the approval of the FY20 budget, a majority of those items remained the same. So, so, if, they so were included, if they didn't have an application in 19... Mm-hmm. And they were funded? Yes. Are they funded in this 20 budget? Yes, they are. The only exception would be if it was already backed out of FY20, which would have meant that it was a one-time item or an economic incentive that is no longer needed in FY20. But to answer your question, yes. So Asian Chamber, and I, there were a few others who reached out. I can't recall who they are. It's yes. And what was the issue this year with payments? Because I think I just ran into Milan last week, and she had just gotten her payment. I know um, a couple of other agencies who did not want me to name them. It took several months to get their payments. 
we can research that for you and provide a response. Um, but my understanding is that to date, uh, just about most of those payments have been paid out after working with the various agencies within the city. I had several nonprofits who depended on that. If you can give me those n- names in writing, then I can absolutely find out for you. Okay. I mean, last week was, what, nine, ten months into our budget year. So I'm just curious. I know that one in particular did not receive their payment that was in the budget. So I'm just wondering if there was an issue on their end. Don't have to get too specific or if we are having. I know legal was tied up for a while and the person in legal was out. And then, but that was way back, months back. And she just got a check last week. If you can give me those names, okay. then I can find out for you. Okay. Thank you. Ms. Mm-hmm. Um, Trammell, did you have a question? Um, Jay, I would yes, like ma'am. to have the, um, some answers to that, too, because sure. I've got emails going all the way back um, where this lady was begging us um, to give her her money, and she never, I mean, I think it was just, what, a month ago when she finally got it? And like she said in here, we adopted it. In July, mm-hmm. you know, the budget, and for her to be in it to get her money, and she never got it. And I gave her, I know, so many different numbers for her to call. And she was telling me that the people I gave her, they wouldn't even call her back. So, Mr. Brown, or I'm sorry, I see Ms. Reed back there. If you could, how quickly can we get a response back relative to uh, these uh, entities that are in? non-departmental who their status in terms of receipt of payment and where their issues or were issues what they were and what the resolution will be going forward. Good morning. My name is Lenore Reed. Uh, I am the Deputy Chief Administrative Officer for the City of Richmond. Uh, Great question, but what we need to have are specifics. If you could give us the names of those organizations that have questions or concerns. I serve as the Chief Financial Officer of the City. If there are questions and concerns in regards to payment, I would appreciate if Council would reach out to the Chief Administrative Officer or myself to make sure these things are alleviated very quickly because we actually do process within five days of receipt or if there's information that says that we need to provide funding on a quarterly basis, we strive to meet that. And so I would be very interested to find out who they are so that we can rectify that uh, situation immediately. Yeah. The Asian, so we will get that Asian list. Chamber is one. Right. But the others, I would have to reach back because they griped but didn't want to be penalized. They think there's some kind of... Miss Gray, if you would get, and Miss Trammell, um, and anyone else... If you were going to get them to make, and so they can, I'll get permission okay. from the folks to to inquire about it. But I wasn't I wasn't quite done with my okay. question on the lodging tax. Are we including any projected revenues from Airbnb? No, ma'am. Is there any reason why? I mean, we are in the process of adopting an ordinance on that. John, I'm John Wack, Director of Finance. Just to clarify, uh, Airbnb properties are any, any property with less than 10 bedrooms. Or I should is say short term rentals because I'm not trying to promote any particular. So we do have a short term rental tax for tangible personal property. 
but uh, for any uh, real estate property of less than 10 bedrooms, they are exempt from taxation currently under city code. We would need to change city code. That is why there, there's not any revenue from, from what would be a new revenue source. But aren't we planning on doing that? We have not yet introduced it, those ordinances. Well, I've been asking for more than two years now, and I think that and, – and actually tomorrow, Mr. Olinger is presenting an ordinance on short-term rentals, also known as Airbnb rentals. But um, so I'm wondering, is that part of the ordinance that's going to be introduced so the, right now, the uh, Planning and Development Review is, is doing public outreach, and so it's not really a finance issue at this point, because there would have to be extensive changes to the zoning ordinance of the city in order for us to uh, uh, enforce that. But we've known about this for more than five years. It's revenue that's – I mean, we have had thousands of rentals happening. It's revenue we're leaving on the table, and I'm just wondering why we're not projecting to see any in the next year. Even if it takes us six months to get the ordinance and all the legal stuff tied up, why wouldn't we project some revenue from it? I would say it's not yet a, a, an issue for the Department of Finance. We are st still working on the public outreach, and we don't have those ordinances uh, introduced at this time. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right. Um, and I may have already asked this question about J. Sergeant Reynolds in the past, but what is the support um, that we give for their capital and operating? We can reach out and provide that to you. I believe we have that information, and we can provide that to you. And then MetroCare is not being funded in this year's budget, the water program. Is there any reason why that's being taken out, or is it being provided through the enterprise that funding, the program is not being eliminated. The Department of Public Utilities does have sufficient funding to run and operate that program. Uh, they just not, they did not need an appropriation in FY20 for that program. But again, that program will not be eliminated. So okay. if that were to be equated out for how much we're paying in utility increase, on the water bill. I mean, if we're saying we're going to raise people's water bills, but they have enough funds in their own operation to cover 350000 in MetroCare assistance with water bills, it doesn't. Well, this is, this is funding that, can, that comes from the, the general fund, and this is funding that the MetroCare program has not fully spent in past years, so it should not be coming from the utility rates. This is all general fund dollars. But they're an enterprise. Mm -hmm. So you're saying right now we don't have to take money out of the general fund. No. no. Yes, they are an enterprise fund, but this program, the MetroCare program, is funded by the general fund, and that's why it's in the general fund non-departmental budget. But it's zeroed out. Yes, because they have enough money to run the program. They did not need an additional $350,000 in FY20, and that's why the program is still going to be moving forward. No changes in the program. What, so how do they have – are you expecting a surplus that you want to carry forward? Okay. Uh, good morning. Calvin Farr, Director of Public Utilities. Good morning. Uh, so the, the money that goes towards the Metro Care is from donations. It's not from rates. So that's why it's in the general fund. 
So it doesn't have it doesn't have any impact on enterprise funds or the budget. So is it a special revenue fund? I don't understand how you would say you have enough because it wouldn't carry if it's in the general fund, right? Again, this is a general fund contribution to the MetroCare program. So it's funded by the general fund. <coughs> separate from the special fund, separate from the utility rate, separate from Is the it funded fund. somewhere else in the general fund? And this is a supplement to what's funded because it's zeroed out. Let me make sure maybe I'm not clear. The Department of Public Utilities has sufficient funding to operate the MetroCare program. And it's all funded by general fund dollars. They did not spend all their money in the past years from the general fund for this program, and they have sufficient funding for the MetroCare program. Okay. Where can I find that funding in the budget? Yeah, just so that we'll be clear on the question and response, if we could get the specifics in writing, we'll be able to respond okay. if Mr. Farr doesn't may, uh, I, answer that question. I think you would. Uh, I'm looking at FY19 approved was 350000 FY20 proposed is zero. So that's all I'm asking. How is it funded now if it's zero? Okay. Yeah, we, we, have, we have the funding. Uh, for FY20. So, uh, again, the program's not going to go anywhere. Um, what we have seen is not the, uh, the most participation in the program, so, um, but it's not going away. We have enough funding to, to carry it through. So, Ms. Gray, if I might, if we could get uh, where that is delineated in okay. the budget, um, and you can get that to Megan and we'll she do. can get that back to us, that would be helpful. We'll All right, Ms. Gray, I'm sorry. That's fine. Okay, Mr. Jones. Thank you, Madam President. Just uh, one, one quick question. Um, looking at the tax relief, elderly disabled program, uh, how much have we expended in past years? Have we used that entire amount? The actuals for the prior two years should be in the budget document. I believe we have seen a slight increase in FY18, but we are spending and we are projected to spend very close to the budgeted amount now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, just to clarify, in fiscal year 18, we, we granted about $2.8 million. Uh, we requested a budget amendment to increase the budget to $3.1 million for the current fiscal year in order to address uh, increases in, in, in assessed values. And the proposal for FY20 is about $4.6 million. About a million of that is due to expansion of the eligibility. Thank you. Okay. Ms. Gray, did you have another question? I did. Um, I've always wondered and kind of taken issue with school funding that comes through non-departmental, like for programming within the schools, because on the school board, we wondered why, you know, we could never really see what communities and schools, their full total compensation and, and general fund dollars was. And I'm not picking on them. They do a good job. But I'm just wondering why the middle school renaissance is seeing an increase in our budget and I could not trace and find, I found it very difficult in the school budget. It looked like after school tutoring and programming was cut by 700000 But we're showing an increase of 100000 in our non-departmental here. 
And it said, I think you said something about Albert Hill. But I'm just curious to know what exactly we're paying for and why, if it's a priority for schools, why it's not, why it was cut in the school budget. Mr. Brown and I see Ms. Kudosipes behind you. Certainly, well, I can certainly address the proposed 100,000 increase. Um, there was a, a, a response to that question, and the response was is that in order to um, increase the commitment to public education, this will help fund efforts towards after-school and out-of-school time um, and programming specifically, and it will match private gifts and will allow NextUp to complete their expansion of after-school programming to all middle schools in Richmond by starting a program at Albert Hill Middle School. So, as a middle school parent, I understand the need for these programs, but I don't think it's appropriate for city council to be funding those programs. I think it should be a request in the school budget based on their priorities, and we fund what they ask for, but maybe they don't want next up at Albert Hill. I don't know. I know... You know, they have, a, they have a plan that they've asked for a significant amount of funding for, and now we're being asked to fund something else outside of that. So I, I don't think this is a good way for us to have an, a grasp on what we're spending money on because I'd like to know what we're spending on middle school after-school after programming total out of our budget but when it's piecemealed and done in this manner, it's really hard to get a handle on. I think we can certainly get um, that information, um, and Ms. Brown will capture that. Ms. And then it's not captured in – then it doesn't get captured in the per-pupil spending either. So if we're spending it and it's out of the school's budget – it actually gives an impression that we're spending less per people than we actually are. So we will, um, Ms. Brown will be in conversation with Ms. Kudosipes. I'm not sure if you are wanting to say anything at this point, but we can certainly get the information back in conversation with um, uh, Mr. Cameras with schools. But... This is focused on, as you know, uh, after-school programming. So we'll get the information back. I just want to know what we're spending, and I'd like we it can to, do that. I'd like it to be a grant, perhaps to schools, and they decide how it's spent. If we, if it's a priority, and that's what we're doing. But, I mean, how much are we already spending out of general fund on this? Okay, Ms. Brown, you have that. Thank you. Sure, and we can certainly help to respond to that once we get any questions right. And we'll make sure that that comes back to you. Thank you. With that, anything else, Mr. Brown? I'm sorry, Mr. Emmel. Yes, Madam President, I would like, um, Jay, I'd like to have the information on the um, tax relief, how much money that was bought in. Sure, we can provide that for you. And also I'd like to know... Um, That's all right. I'll, I'll call you later. I, sure. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all.
The next presentation will be citizen service and response. Good morning, Madam President Newbill and members of the council. Uh, I am Peter Briel, Director of Citizen Service and Response, which was newly established in FY 2019. The department includes the city's 311 call center, which has 14 call center representatives. Uh, but the CSR's uh, mission is broader than 311. As stated in the improved biennial fiscal plan, our mission is to provide strategic support to city departments to enable consistent best-in-class citizen services and response. The department aims to gather, analyze, and report on citizen requests and the city's response to them in order to aid the city departments in providing effective, efficient, and proactive delivery of citizen services. My vision for how to accomplish the mission is based on four principles, responsiveness, ease of use, transparency, and consistency. Frankly, as a city, I think we all agree that we have opportunities in each of these areas, uh, which is why you chose to create this department. CSR is working with the departments and our software vendor to methodically address these opportunities. This involves analysis of citizen requests and city responses to identify where improvements should be made in service delivery and communication. Uh, we then partner with the departments to identify process and resource decisions that they could make to drive improvements. Additionally, we are working hard to create the data set and implement reporting tools that will allow us to report on requests, responses, outcomes, and citizen satisfaction with service delivery. This will take time, but we are making steady progress. Uh, the call center thus far this fiscal year through the end of March has handled 124,000 uh, calls with a first call resolution of over 60%. Roughly 79,000 requests have been handled during the call. Just under 45,000 additional requests have been delivered to departments so far in fiscal year 2019. At, this, at the point we deliver the request to the departments, they are responsible for all responses and fulfillment. We have been building the CSR team this year. At the beginning of the fiscal year, the department was comprised of five permanent customer service representatives. Every other role was filled with an acting interim or temporary staffing position. In the last seven months, we have hired the director, call center manager, supervisor, and workforce manager. There was an intentional decision to hire my position first so that I would be able to select my leadership team. Likewise, I made an intentional decision to wait to hire our permanent customer service representatives until after I hired the call center manager so that he could select his own team. Uh, Mr. Hampton started on February uh, 19th. He's actually sitting right back here uh, and brings 20 years of call center experience management to the position. Uh, we are lucky to have him. Uh, we have now started the hiring process for the 10 call center reps, uh, which is the entirety of our FY 2019 vacancy funding. The two additional positions uh, included in the mayor's uh, FY 2020 budget are to create a position for an information services manager so that we have an internal subject matter uh, expert on the RVA 311 system. Uh, that is someone uh, to work with our current and potential future vendors to deliver improved service and ease of use. The second position is for a quality assurance analyst 
whose responsibility is to ensure the call quality of our call center representatives' interactions with the citizenry. Uh, funding for these positions is critical to CSR's ability to improve citizen uh, engagement with the city of Richmond. Thank you, and uh, I welcome any questions. Thank you. Council members, are there any questions? Ms. Gray? So I understand you were staffing with temporary employees. However, I've called and held on for extended periods of time, and I've gotten – I tend to get calls after people get frustrated because they can't get through. Uh, so are you saying with the 10 people, permanent people you're hiring, that we're not going to have these extended wait times on the calls and are issues going to be addressed in a timely manner? I know that you can't physically go and address some of these issues. They, they get routed to the respective departments, but um, people, when I ask them to go through 311 first because I, I don't think it's effective or efficient for them to call me about all their issues. They, they tend to be angrier when they call me back. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, uh, we've seen dramatic improvements in our service level since uh, Mr. Hampton came on as our call center uh, manager. Um, uh, there are peak seasons where we just we, we can't staff high enough. We do have uh, temporary funding here in the uh, next year's budget to uh, handle peaks, um, but there is a, a, a timing with regard to training those people so that they can effectively answer those questions. Um, October and May typically are our toughest months because we have delinquency, tax delinquency uh, bills going out, so we have very high volume. And it's very hard to staff to that, those particular peaks. Uh, but, uh, for example, in the last month, our average wait times have been uh, in the range of under a minute. Uh, last week was 31 seconds. Uh, so we've seen very dramatic improvements as we've optimized our scheduling. And uh, we will always have uh, occasional months uh, with high volume. Uh, uh, but um, typically, uh, I think you're going to see much better performance going forward. Uh, in terms of responsiveness, um, we continue to work with the departments uh, uh, very proactively to identify uh, which types of requests have long lead times uh, and um, uh, provide them with the data so that they can target those for uh, additional uh, attention. Mr. Angelesto. Thank you. And um, I guess my biggest question for the department is um, the software and implementation that we received responses from your department. Um, I think when we received a gift of software from Alvpoint, there was a lot of question about, well, you know, this is a gift and how does that lock them in potentially as a future vendor? And now we're seeing an impact in the budget as to having to go out and procure something um, instead of having any kind of um, sole source. That means that we're going to be rolling out potentially yet another system. I guess my issue is when we got to the off point, I think that's how you say it, but nevertheless, and it was offered as a gift, was it the system we wanted? 
And if it was the system that we wanted, what's the likelihood of them being selected in the future through procurement for continuing operation? Um, uh, great question. Uh, Avpoint has been a great partner uh, and a great bridge solution for us uh, um, as we uh, it, it's really helped us understand what all of our needs are, and, and they've worked very, very well with us. Um, as far as uh, we are legally required to have a competitive bid, um, we certainly uh, expect them to uh, be competitive in that bid, um, but uh, we, we need to have all of our options open um, as, as uh, other vendors uh, provide solutions as well. Um, uh, but uh, I, I really look at the, the silver lining of this is we got essentially three years of uh, completely cost-free uh, uh, software and implementation. Um, but uh, at, at some point, we're going to have to pay for it. Right. What, what is an annual, what would the annual subscription have been for AvPoint? Uh, they quoted it as part of the gift at 250000 a year for uh, 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 subscription fees. For subscription fees. Okay. So essentially we saved $750,000 on subscription fees, but we're potentially now having to spend millions of dollars to transition again into a new platform. And I say that based on the response here that says it will cost a million dollars and that we're going to have a whole new personnel to manage the transition and manage the relationship well, I would assume, since we did a transition before, that we had similar costs. And that might have been a short vision. Um, I'm just very concerned about this. And conversely, what happens if Avpoint is selected? Does that free up um, necessarily having to have an IT cohort in your department since it's just a continuation of the existing software? Uh, in terms of the... Uh uh, info services uh, manager, it would not free that up because we still need somebody to administer uh, the existing uh, software. Uh, everything from creating new request types on behalf of the departments or on behalf of citizens who request them uh, to uh, um, adding and uh, removing users, uh, uh, user access administration. Uh, there is a lot of optimization that goes into the software um, and a lot that we still want to do uh, in the existing software, it is not what I would consider done uh, from an optimization point of view. We've got multiple requests types that the departments would like to have. We have a lot of uh, reporting capabilities that we uh, also want to add. So even if uh, uh, if AppPoint were to uh, uh, win the next bid, uh, we will be continuing to uh, improve that system uh, for the foreseeable future. Mr. Addison. Thank you, Council President. Um, Mr. Bredill, I appreciate your um, work since you've taken this role at City Hall to improve, I think, our call center with um, a web service application and the call center as a whole and trying to just make it be more what it should have been 10 years ago when they formed it. Um, but one of the challenges I think Mr. Gelasto mentioned uh, is the technology aspect of that. I know there's a mobile app, there's a web application, um, website, there's also the internal operations and all the systems at play in there, and there are also some improvements, I think, scheduled or being proposed and explored for improving and addressing some of the 
nuance of that. Is that included in this piece, or is that in the IT budget? Is that focused on, just want to make sure I understood where the funding for possibly the upgrades and improvements to the system as a whole were going to be funded from? Uh, within the existing system, uh, we are not able in any way, shape, or form to uh, uh, do enhancements that we pay for without a sole source contract uh, because it was not competitively bid. Uh, that said, um, Avpoint, I think very openly, um, came into this uh, uh, essentially as a beta of their software. They've been very open to our feedback and responsive to the needs of the city in terms of global enhancements that they've been doing uh, to improve the system. And we also, on our side, have uh, additional um, uh, uh, configuration capabilities that we're just beginning to utilize um, to do this. Quite honestly, right now, um, our, uh, we, we have somebody uh, in a contractor role playing a similar role uh, temporarily uh, uh, really, her bandwidth is uh, pretty full right now with the RFP creation, um, which is a pretty involved process, and then doing some uh, um, configuration on the side. Uh, but as we get through that RFP uh, writing contract agreement and uh, implementation, as, as time is available, she dedicates that time to additional enhancements uh, of the configuration. And um, as a, a kind of a follow-up point, now this goes back before your tenure here, but um, the previous CRM system that we had, uh, the Kana login, and now Verant, I think it went to, um, I know that there was uh, issues around the country with their system and operations to the point where I think there might have been um, either grumblings or an actually a class action lawsuit taken against that provider in which I knew we could have explored being a part of that due to our issues with implementation delays and problems with that capacity. Um, and knowing that there's a budget that was approved for this that had not been fully spent, if I remember correctly, for the CRM implementation due to some of those impacts and operational cap capacities, if there's a way of getting some of that funding back due to the national issues with that system, I would like to explore that because that could help the longer-term budget aspects of making sure that this is funded based upon what we have already established our taxpayer dollars to be spent on previously and not having to duplicate or add to that, considering that there are issues um, with that vendor through several iterations of that implementation of CRM across the country. Uh, I know that Charlotte, I think, was one of the ones leading that charge, if I remember correctly, uh, for that class auction lawsuit. And I don't know if it's too late for that, but that was an issue that happened with that contract. And I know there's funds, funding still in there that I think we can have available for what he's proposing. But at the end of the day, we never got that fully operational. <laughs> and I think that's a key problem of what we had to face with Avpoint becoming a saving the day, you know, white knight coming in to help fix that with their technology. But um, the past still is a part of that problem. And so I think for me, we're going back and fixing work that didn't, was not done correctly the first time. And it might not be a lot of money, but money nonetheless can help us fund the things needed to make this thing work the way it can and should. And we've had great conversations, Mr. Briel and your staff, about ways to bring the community uh, of technologists and coders and designers to figure out how to make this system work for a more you know, citizen-focused operation. And I want to make sure we do that and have the funding fully that we can do that without having to add new burdens to our budget. So I just wanted to bring that up because I know that that was a discussion previously. And if that is still an option, I'd like to explore that if we could. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Emmel. Thank you, Madam President. 
I know that year after year we talk about this over and over and over about how we're going to make it better, and it looks like every year it doesn't really get better because I have so many citizens that call me to tell me that they have to, they call like during their lunch break when they're at work, and I mean, some of them spend a whole 30 minutes on the phone trying to get someone to answer the phone, or when they finally do get somebody, they, you know, they don't, they don't feel like when they hung up that that person understood exactly what they were trying to tell them. And then they'll call me back or come to our meetings and say, well, I gave it to 311 or I called, I did what you told me to do. And then we find out that you have to realize what is public works, what's public utilities, what's the, um, what's the city street lights, what is Dominion Power street lights. So it's kind of like nobody gets back with them to say, okay, we, we couldn't um, fulfill your request because it went to the wrong department. Or if it goes, like, say, to public works, what does public works do? Do they send it to, to public utilities? Does it just get thrown, like, thrown out of the system? Because a lot of people said that it was cleared when it was not. It was not taken care of. And I know that um, I had um, taken this before to um, Mr. Marshall, and that was, like I said, that's been going back in the day. Um, thank you for that question, and by the way, I look forward to uh, coming to your um, uh, district uh, town hall next week um, to talk about these kinds of things. Those are great questions. Um, we are working with the departments uh, uh, actively uh, on a reassignment process so that anything that is incorrectly reassigned can be uh, assigned can be reassigned. Um, uh, but uh, uh, for the most part, our intention is that that's fully uh, transparent to the citizen. They don't need to know what department it goes to. Uh, they simply submit their requests, and it goes to the right department. Um, as we continue to enhance the system, that will get better and better. Uh, as we have, um, like you said, nuances in things such as uh, light poles, some of which are DPU and some of which are Dominion, and what's the full process to uh, um, uh, uh, submit a request to Dominion when we find that a poll that was uh, 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 not working uh, is actually a Dominion poll. We built out a lot of that process working with the departments. Uh, as we identify additional opportunities, we continue to work with them to ensure that those get to the right place if they don't go there in, in, uh, initially. And also, I know that um, some of my citizens have said that they've been asked to go out there and see, give them more information, like the numbers off the poll or whatever. Or, you know, what does it say? Does it say Dominion? Does it say VEPCO? Does it say what, what are the... And they don't like, I don't know. I don't know where... It, and it's kind of like, are they really supposed to do that? Are they supposed to ask them those kind of questions? Or like you said, do they just take the address or, or where the lights are out? Like, I know that... Um, that's okay. I won't say that. But anyway... Because uh, it's not my district, so I don't want to go there. Yeah, that information is optional. Um, uh, if uh, you'd be surprised, a lot of people do actually capture that information. So we ask for it, but we don't require it. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With that, uh, we have a few um, questions, and Megan Brown will follow up with you uh, to get those back to the responses back to council members. Thank you very much. Next presentation will be the Department of Finance.
Welcome again, Ms. Reed and Mr. Wack. Good morning again. Um, Lenore Reed, DCAO for Finance and Administration. The reason I'm here is to address a few things to, and to inform the council that the majority of my departments or the departments within the finance and administration portfolio will be presented today. Uh, finance, human resources, and procurement. And those budgets were predicated upon the mayor's budget, um, but recently we received some amendments to that budget. And so I wanted to say and to put on record that we will address those amendments and we realize that there will be other amendments as well that will be addressed in finance and administration will be able to put that information uh, in writing to the council. I would be remiss and it would not be transparent if I was to say any amendment would be catastrophic to the budget. I know that's what council is expecting me to say, and that is not true. However, the amendments that I reviewed are catastrophic uh, to the budget, and so we would like to be able to respond to those. I have many individuals in the audience today from the Finance, Human Resources, and Procurement Office. If you would like to stand, please do so. And I, and I did that because I want you to know these individuals here today are representing not just my portfolio, but citywide. Um, these are our workforce. And we realize that, and what you're going to hear from Mr. Wack, the responsibility, and especially from the finance department, is to generate all revenue uh, for the city to record our revenue for the city, to pay all the debts of the city, to ensure that all individuals that work for the city are paid, to ensure that all vendors that do business with the city are paid. Uh, we have moved that needle far along. Uh, when I came to the city, um, finance was, and I'm going to say it, and it's probably not a popular word, but I feel that finance was in shambles, uh, not just in the finance department, but citywide, we were on the verge of a bond rating downgrade um, at the time. Um, I went to New York, and it's not that someone told me that. Um, the bond rating agencies themselves communicated that um, to both the CAO and I and the mayor, uh, indicating that the city was on the verge of a bond rating downgrade. We were not paying our bills on time. We were not funding all of our contractual obligations. Um, there were many things we were not doing. We were not presenting our financial statements on time and when they were due. Um, that became an issue for the city. Uh, and I didn't plan to say this, but I have to admit, it's a little embarrassing to me to be the CFO of the city, to be representing the city with our counterparts, and they're all AAA agencies, AAA localities, and, and we're not. It becomes an embarrassment um, because in those meetings, the feeling is that they're doing better than the city of Richmond. As we've gotten our financial house on track. Um, we are presenting our financial statements on time. We are paying our bills within 
five days of receipt to the finance department. And that's why I, I take it a little personal when, you know, they tell me that things aren't being done because I would like to know. So I'm very sincere. One of the things I brought to the city, and that is truth and transparency. I'm a very ethical person. There's nothing that council, the administration have asked me to do that's in my power to do that I have not done. And so I come before you today for my portfolio to say we want to keep the budget intact. We support the mayor's budget. We support it wholeheartedly, and the presentations you hear today is predicated upon the fact that the mayor's budget will be intact. That may not be reality. And whatever the will of council is, we are ready to stand firm and to do that. But we are asking council, and especially for my department, when I came before you two years ago, I said to you, I have 36 vacant positions in finance. And I said, if you give me the funding, then we will be able to do the things that you ask for finance to do. We've done that. We've increased our revenue collections. We've enhanced our revenue collection efforts. We've presented our financial statements on time. We needed positions, and we got those positions. Thank you to council for providing that funding for us. We still struggle with filling vacancies, and you're going to hear that today from John Wack um, in regards to that. And you're going to hear it again from Human Resources as to why. Um, but we have a heavy load in front of us for finance and administration, but we're dedicated uh, to ensuring that we move the city forward. We know that we're on the same page with city council. We know that we have the same goals. And so whenever there's a concern or issue that you have in regards to my portfolio, I ask that you do reach out to me and the CAO because my goal is to make sure that we rectify those issues and that we move the city forward together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Reed. Again, I'm John Wack, the Director of Finance, and I have a brief presentation just to give some high-level uh, summaries about the Finance Department and be open for questions relative to the, the budget. Uh, just to, to provide the, the, the format of, of our division, uh, Ms. Reed is the Deputy CAO for Finance Administration. Uh, Council has already heard from Information Technology about their internal service fund budget for fiscal 20. Uh, so today you'll be hearing from Finance, Procurement, and Human Resources. The uh, org chart for finance, as it currently sits, uh, there are 109 general fund positions and three in the Risk Management Internal Service Fund. You can see that uh, the majority of our positions, about 64 positions, are in revenue administration, overseeing tax collections, audit, and assessments. We have 30 positions in the controllers area for general accounting, accounts payable, and payroll. And we also have uh, an information services group in our investment and debt management. Uh, portfolio manager. Um, in the mayor's fiscal year 20 uh, proposed budget, we have three positions that are being added to the revenue administration area. I'll get more into that later. In terms of the uh, incremental changes in the budget, in fiscal year 18 and prior years, the finance department had uh, six cost centers, and in an effort to, uh, to increase, increase transparency and also give each of our managers 
the ability to monitor their own budgets, we doubled the number of uh, cost centers for fiscal year 19 and 20 purposes to 12. So, for example, you can see that the uh, collections budget was split into three cost centers, delinquent collections, cash operations, and commissioner revenue for real estate. In terms of how the uh, personnel budget was adopted in 2019, those funds were that $8.13 million was concentrated in, in a small number of cost centers. At the beginning of the fiscal year in July, we did uh, do a budget transfer to realign the uh, personnel budget according to the cost centers, as you see before you, but the net change was zero. In terms of our primary goals, we want to complete the CAFR early. 2019 will be the third, in a, third year in a row. We want to increase, increase the collection of delinquent taxes through more proactive efforts. We want to process accounts payable and payroll accurately and on time. I would say uh, maybe payroll is our number one priority for every other Friday. Uh, we also want to improve our business processes using technology and enhance the city's financial position to, to, post, to prepare us for potential credit rating upgrades and ensure the sustainability. Uh, just a recap of our uh, recent years of the CAFR completion. Fiscal year 2014 with Cherry Beckert, we were about 11 months late and received a qualified opinion at that time. In fiscal year 15, we were again about 11 months late uh, under Grant Thornton, with, but the qualification had been removed. In fiscal year 2016, we were about six months late with Clifton Larson Allen. And during the past two years, we have been able to present the, the CAFR to City Council in early November uh, with Clifton Larson Allen. In terms of the, the different reports that Finance Department issues, uh, in addition to the CAFR, we also submit the comparative cost report to the Auditor of Public Accounts by November 30th of each year. We issue monthly financial reports to City Council by the 15th of each subsequent month. The Finance Department participates in uh, providing the citywide local tax revenue projections for the quarterly budget projections. We also work with an outside vendor to prepare the central service cost allocation report that's submitted to the Virginia Department of Social Services in order this, for the city to recoup federal pass-through revenues for social services. And we also use that uh, for the utilities department in terms of cost allocation. And finally, uh, we also issue the single audit report on our federal grants. All these uh, reports, are, uh, the, the CAFR, the monthly reports, and, and the single audits are posted on the Finance Department's website. Just some uh, general highlights in, in our accounting area. We issued over 85,000 payments in 2018. We administer biweekly payroll for over 4,300 employees. We coordinate financial reporting for 159 different funds. And within those funds, we have over 300 projects and grants. For revenue administration, we send about 41,000 real estate tax bills each year, not counting about 30,000 accounts that are, that are handled by mortgage companies. We also send about 120,000 personal property bills. We have over 150,000 153,000 vehicles that are subject to the personal property tax in the city of Richmond. And each year we reach out to about 11,000 businesses regarding their business license renewal. Some additional highlights in revenue administration. Uh, in recent years, we've been processing about 2,600 real estate uh, tax relief for the elderly and disabled applications. We do anticipate that increase increasing by several hundred in the upcoming year. We send about 65,000 debt set-offs to the Virginia Department of Taxation to gain revenue. We tend to send about 55,000 delinquent personal property tax bills per year and about 7,000 delinquent real estate tax bills. And in fiscal year 2020, we expect to complete 150 business audits. 
In terms of our vacant positions, uh, in, in, in the, the staff report will indicate 29 vacant positions. I just wanted to give some better context for that. Uh, three of those positions cannot be filled at this point in time because they are new in fiscal year 2020. Two of them are for expanded tax relief, and one of them is for the new cigarette tax. Since the January 25th snapshot, we have filled uh, a net 11 full-time positions, so we were down to 15 vacancies at this point in time. All of those 15 positions are under some form of recruitment. We do fill our positions on a return-to-investment basis. For example, if we have a position come vacant and we see a position, uh, an opportunity where we could get more revenue in another functional area, we have moved positions around that way. Uh, most of our vacant positions are in revenue administration and directly correspond with the collection of revenues. And with the vacancy funding included, we did uh, add about $2.3 million in revenue enhancements relative to the five-year forecast uh, that was presented to, to council. Uh, one thing, I, as you've heard from other department heads, we do have challenges in, in recruitments in ter terms of uh, the salaries we're able to offer, also for the, uh, the benefits that we offer, in particular the, the retirement system can make things challenging. And, and I would note about one in five uh, finance employees did receive a significant salary increase with the implementation of the Gallagher study. Um, so that, that is indicative that we had a large number of employees that were um, really below the, the amount that we could, we could legally offer uh, based on their responsibilities. And we're definitely thankful for council for uh, approving that uh, new compensation plan and, and funding the budget transfers. In terms of the revenue system replacement, uh, there have been reports issued through in 2012 through 2018 recommending the replacement of that system. It was initially budgeted as $4 million in the fiscal year 2014 CIP, but the funding was reprogrammed during the 2018 CIP process. So the proposed budget before you includes $900,000 for staff augmentation and implementation that is not tied to borrowing. There is a separate $3.1 million in, in short-term borrowing in the, in the CIP for the capital asset. just wanted to let Council know uh, we are currently upgrading the versions of our uh, revenue administration system as well as our cashiering system. And as, as those are implemented, we are, going, we are actively working on a fit gap analysis in anticipation of having that funding available in fiscal year 2020 to replace the system. So that is the conclusion of my high-level presentation and would be ha happy to answer any questions relative to the budget or uh, in regards to the, the staff analysis. Thank you, Mr. Watt. Are there questions, council members? Ms. Gray. Um, just that what I'm hearing about finance and more particular in procurement, there's a high turnover that isn't due to pay, but culture and climate. And I'd like to know what's being done to address some of the culture and climate issues that are, um, as, as my grandmother used to say, everybody ain't telling the same lie. So there's something going on. Absolutely. I agree with that. Lenore Reed, DCAO Finance and Administration. Glad you asked that question. I actually hired someone to deal with the cultural issues within the, my portfolio. I'm not going to say just finance. We started off with finance because when I came in, there was a real problem. I'll admit that. And so I hired someone. Um, if Ms. Walilian, if she's in the audience, could you please stand? Thank you. That's Ms. Walillian Howard. And I went to a graduation for, for HR, one of the classes that HR did. And I have to admit, I snagged her. 
because what was important to me was to change the culture within uh, the city. And I say the city, but I only can work on my portfolio, so I do that one step at a time. And we started with the Department of Finance. There's a lot of work within the Department of Finance. There's a lot of moving parts. You saw the number of um, items that we have to deal with on a daily basis, whether it be payroll, whether it be um, tax collection, any of our revenue um, enhancement opportunities and things that we have. And the culture wasn't good when I walked in the door. But with Ms. Howard and with a great team, what we've been able to do, we've been able to provide classes. We did focus groups. We're doing retreats. And we're doing things, um, basically we're hearing what the employee have to say in regards to um, their daily lives here, because that's very important to me. I want people to work in an environment that's conducive to growth and development. That's one of my main concerns in providing opportunities for our employees. So since I've been here, yeah, there's a lot of hard work, and some would say I'm probably a taskmaster. I would say I'm not. I am the best boss ever, and I always say to my employees, I'm also a pleasant peach, if you didn't know, but <laughs> there's a lot of hard work, and we have very high expectations because you guys are counting on us. All of your constituents are counting on us, and you're counting on us to get it right. And when I came into the door, people weren't concerned with getting it right. They were concerned with getting a paycheck. And so we've changed that. We have leadership classes that Ms. Wallillian's put on. We're getting people from the outside. We don't just do it ourselves because we're not the expert on everything. Well, I guess I'm talking about recent <laughs> concerns and people who are competent, who are getting it right, working hard, but are feeling a bit underappreciated and, and um, mistreated. So I, I, like I don't want to get into any Absolutely. details, but mm -hmm. I do, I'd be remiss because I think that that feeds the additional costs when you have to bring in someone, train them. I mean, just the HR process alone is an added cost. So, um, I've seen it in a lot of departments, so I'm not, but more recently, um, those departments that have high turnover, it's costing us money, and you get it, I know. I do get that, and I'd love to have a side-by-side conversation with you in regards to that, because that's one of my pet peeves, is making sure that we have a culture that's conducive to growth and development uh, in my portfolio. Uh, and that's also with our HR division and all. We have a lot of competent people here working at the city. And we have people that really want to be here working at the city. And we want them to be here working at the city. And so if I'd love to have a conversation. That would be great. The unfortunate, the unfortunate side of it is that we lose good people if we don't address those issues when they're happening. So um, I, I would. Go ahead. No, I was saying I would appreciate the additional information that um, because I think many of us have received some comments uh, that you could share with Megan that does not violate personal uh, policies and procedures. Um, I do want to uh, make sure that if we have budget-specific questions for, for finance that we address those to uh, Mr. Wack and Ms. Reed while they're here. Right. Well, this is specific in that I think a lot of this, and I'd love to get more detail on vacancies and how many are paid for and how many aren't because we keep these vacancies on the book 
and it's not transparent, as I've said before, to, to have years of, of positions carried and you decide which ones you might need when, not you, but departments, is not being transparent and it's not feeding the, the outcome that you want. If you need a person, you need them. If you don't need them, you don't need them. So I don't think it's being as strategic as, as we need to be. Thank you. Ms. Trammell? Um, yes, I have a few, a few things to say. First of all, Valerie Wedless, I want to say thank you for all your help and your support. I just had a senior that's been trying to, that tried to call you, but I let him know that you're in the council chambers because I took um, some papers to him about a month ago so he can get his tax relief. He's a senior, so I let him know that you're in the council chambers and you'd probably call him when you left. But thank you so much. Um, Lenore, I want to say that um, I appreciate you. I appreciate you always returning my phone calls, taking my calls, and, and trying to help the people. Um, I have a business owner that's very, very upset, and he's upset with me because I would not go over there the other day to get his information again. This, like, will be the third or fourth year that I've had to go there and get his information so he can have his business license. And he's texting me again that he called the mayor's office. I guess they had him on answer machine or whatever, and he's not very happy. But he still does not have his business license. He's at 3401 Jefferson Davis Highway, and the company name is F-E-E-B-E-E Venture. And he said, I could give it to you. I could give it to you. Yes, ma'am, and I just noted that Ms. Weatherless will get that information uh, from you as well and provide a response. Right, he wants me to come by there today again, so go by there and get all his information and come back to City Hall and see Valerie, which I know she's helped me many, many times with my seniors where we have went and got them and brought them down here with their paperwork. I mean, Rick Bishop and I personally have went and got seniors, brought them down here so Valerie could help them, and then we carry them back home. But... um. Anyway, I'll go back by there, get his information, and bring it back to City Hall. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you. Thank you for your help. Thank you. Ms. Larson. Thank you. Um, during the mayor's speech when he introduced the budget, he spoke about the tax delinquent properties and the recent change that we had made to the um, the program and how it's decreased revenues. Does that do you, do you manage that program in your department? No, no ma'am. That's Planning. managed by the city attorney's office. I'm sorry. One, once uh, finance nominates a, a a property for the delinquent tax sale pro- program, we mm-hmm. we cease all collection activity, and it's in the, the hands of the city attorney's office. So it's all under the city attorney's office. Those properties that have been that are currently in the program, yes, ma'am. Okay. Can you remind me how much you decreased the revenue by? Um, look, looking back at fiscal year 2018, uh, I believe we collected about $4.2, $4.3 million in delinquent real estate taxes. Through the, there were over 200 properties that, that were either sold or redeemed um, in the city attorney's office. But when we looked forward to the, the 2020 budget in our conversations with, with the city attorney representatives, they indicated um, we might... Want, not want to plan for more than $1.3 million in fiscal year 2020. That's um, about $3 million less than 18, that 18 by baseline. And that's uh, really correlated with, with that, the ordinance that would require the development agreements. Okay. And do you know where we are year to date? I would have to defer to the city attorney's office for that. 
And we'll get that information um, back so that uh, we can complete uh, this presentation since it's once you've punted it. I, I didn't hear what you said. The three million reduction is by what agreements? Uh, council uh, adopted an ordinance which requires uh, performance agreements on certain properties uh, sold through the delinquent tax sale program. Um, because, because of that ordinance, uh, the city attorney's office is, uh, has been cautious in, in being more conservative. They, they feel that we would be, not be able to sell as many properties as we did in fiscal year 2018. So comparing the about $4.3 million in 2018 to the $1.3 million for fiscal year 2020, that's about $3 million less. And is... Is that that's coming from legal, not you? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And the city attorney will provide that information to Ms. Brown so that we can get. Yeah, just specifically, not in general performance agreements, but what piece of the performance agreement is making those properties less desirable? Okay. All right. With that, uh, thank you, Ms. Reed and Mr. Wack. Thank you. I also. I'm sorry. On the tax delinquent, the ones that you still have in collections, are we seeing any better returns? Are you still – where are we with money on the book that we uh, – Each month we do provide in, uh, an exhibit in, in the monthly finance report to, to council where you can see how much is owed to the city now versus a year prior. Uh, I believe we've been doing, doing much better in terms of reducing it. Um, the last report may, may show a slight increase because our, our tax levy is much more significant now and, and taxes were due in January. Um, so I would think towards the fall we will, will, will show less, less owed in delinquent real estate taxes. But really the, the, the hardcore properties that we can't – we've basically exhausted all traditional collection efforts. That's where we, we go through the te- delinquent tax sale program. Right. But where, what is that number that showed in the last quarterly report on uncollected taxes? That are still on your book. They're, they're, they're in the monthly report. Every the last three years, we, we've 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 posted those so, on finance's website. Do we know what that number was last report? Uh, if, if I can not, get that question, I can. Yeah, I'm not sure off the top of my head. We we could respond in writing. Right. If you would make sure you get that to Miss Brown, we would appreciate it. Okay, okay. Mr. Adelasto. Thank you. I, I just want to ask um, a simple question on the delinquent tax uh, issues. I know we have a backlog. Um, what is the administration's forecast for the real estate tax increase as it might impact additional tax delinquencies? Um, I, I think we'd have to get back to you on that. If we're changing the, the, the tax rate effective uh, January 2020, I don't know that that would have a sig- significant impact on our delinquent real estate tax. But it may impact people's ability to pay. Correct. So people who had been in a program and have just recently gotten out of it, now we're increasing their taxes, and are they subject to fall back to delinquent status? We'll get back to you on that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Next presentation, Department of Human Resources. Morning, President Newbill and other council members. Good morning. My name is Karen Garland. I'm the Interim Director of Human Resources for the city. I want to start first by stating that the Department of Human Resources serves 4,412 active employees, thousands of employee family members, 
several thousand citizens interested employment with the city. This past fiscal year, the Department of Human Resources processed nearly 39,000 employment applications, and we processed 868 new employees. This fiscal year so far, we have processed over 31,000 applications and hired 626 new employees. The Department of Human Resources administers the city's health plan that has over 3,500 employees enrolled with an additional 2,200 dependents and 368 retirees covered. HR is being tasked with more and more citywide training requirements that requires the Department of Human Resources to provide training for all or a large segment of city employees. These training requirements are being driven by federal laws related to regulatory requirements. The Department of Human Resources is facing difficulty working efficiently with the vacancy level where it has been. The HR staff is forced to wear multiple hats due to the prolonged vacancy level we've been experiencing due to funding issues. issues excuse me. As you are all aware, the existence of a position vacancy does not equate to position funding. You'll see some variances in our individual line items. The individual variances shown are due primarily to the realignment of personnel costing as well as operations costing to better reflect the operational nature of job duties and services and to be more transparent in our reporting. A portion of the variances in operational and personnel costs is due to these increased mandates that I just mentioned that's determined by regulatory agencies such as the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA. We in human resources have had to make hard choices to get the job done, which results in a longer wait time for HR services. I ask that you please support the mayor's budget as approval will provide a means for the Department of Human Resources to address the critical needs of both our department and the city overall. I'm ready to take any questions that you might have. Thank you, Ms. Garland. Council Quite members, welcome. are there any questions for Ms. Garland? Okay. Seeing none. Okay, good. We thank you. Okay, thank you. Madam President, I would like to just say, um, Karen, thank you. Thank you for helping me, and um, also thank you for always being so nice. Oh, I appreciate fine. everything. You're thank fine. you. Okay. Next presentation, Department of Procurement. Good morning, Honorable President, members of City Council, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Betty Burrell. I am the Director of Procurement Services. I support and agree with the Mayor's proposed budget in support of our efforts to provide value and high-quality services to the City. Procurement Services is among the departments in the pilot priority-based budgeting program for fiscal year 2020. You have heard from other departments that participated in the pilot performance-based budgeting program, so I will skip these slides. 
As stated in the proposed budget, the Department of Procurement Services supports the city by performing procurement functions in a customer-focused, strategic, ethical, and transparent manner while ensuring opportunities to diverse suppliers and complying with applicable governing laws and policies. I won't read to you the objectives or the impact of our services on mayoral and council priorities. For the cost center procurement services administration, the administrative functions of procurement services include records retention in accordance with Library of Virginia requirements pertaining to the massive volume of contracts and other documents under our care. Vendor registration and database management including review, approval, or disapproval of vendor self-registrations, renewals of existing contracts, surplus property management, and general overall administrative management, including preparing responses to FOIA requests, freedom of information requests, which are numerous. In explaining the cost center contract management, Essentially, all goods and vendor services purchased by the city departments and agencies in amounts greater than 5000 must be either solicited for and or approved by either a procurement services contract specialist, senior contract specialist, contracting officers, and or the director. In procurement jargon, the phrase is cradle to grave a representation of life cycle from concept through development, acquisition, operations, and final disposition. In fiscal 19, the Department of Procurement Services successfully inaugurated the city's procurement card program, commonly referred to as P-Cards. All purchases, whether made by P-Card or through the city's traditional methods of procurement must all be conducted in compliance with a myriad of city, state, and uh, laws and their regulations and policies to which we must adhere. The proposed budget for fiscal year 20 includes an operating budget of $70,970. All other expenses are personnel related including an amount of additional funding for vacant positions, as well as health care and other citywide personnel costs increases. The manner in which personnel costs are realigned for the fiscal year 20 budget were done so in order to more clearly account for the costs of services provided. This concludes my comments. Are there any questions? Thank you, Ms. Burrell. Council members, are there questions? Mr. Jones. Thank you, Madam President. Ms. Burrell, appreciate your presentation. Just one quick question looking at your, uh, your uh, vacant positions. Uh, you show a decrease of eight, uh, eight, eight bodies. Uh, how does that impact deliverables or your efficacy within your department? We, we obviously, the more people we have, the better we are. But the vacancies, the decrease in the number of positions that were budgeted for vacant are 
actually positions authorized to be filled. And I'll ask if um, Dr. Brown wants to talk about the vacancy versus fully funding positions. I believe that's your question. What's, why do we have a decrease in the vacancy funding? And it's really not just a, a, a why do you, but just what's the impact to um, your department? That's, and that's just a matter of information. Just of your personal education. Funding the vacant positions. The, the ability to have more funding means that we'll be able to process more quickly when we have those positions filled. Is that what you're asking? No, 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 ma'am. Let, let, me, let me just make sure I'm clear. You're, you're calling for a decrease in headcount, correct? Councilman Jones, I just I want to make maybe, sure that I understand maybe this your, isn't. your question. The inquiry is regarding the number of vacant positions. Yeah, I just want to know how it impacts what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. That's all. Oh, okay. Yes, she has, um, procurement has more filled positions now than what they did last year. Okay. Just making sure that I understand your question. Yes, sir. Thank you. Did that address it, Mr. Jones? You're having the ability to fill more positions. And that's fine. I mean, okay. just, just again, to, to see that there is a cut in uh, vacant positions and vacant position funding, just, and again, everyone else is saying, well, we need this to do X, Y, Z. And I was just asking, you know, based upon your decrease, how does that impact what you do on a daily basis? And if there's no impact to it or if there's, that, that was just, Basic question. Yeah, Lenore Reed, DCAO Finance and Administration. I think I know exactly where you're going with this. There's a decrease in the vacancy funding year over year. Uh, a couple of years ago, the procurement department had a lot of vacant positions, and they required more vacancy funding. And if you could recall, in the last year, we came to you to, when we came to move some funding around to ensure that they had positions that they could fill. Currently, you'll see a decrease in the amount of vacancy funding that's requested because there are fewer vacant positions to be filled. I believe right now there are uh, five positions that could be filled, or maybe three as we speak, and they're all in recruitment now. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Farrell. Ms. Gray. Can someone tell me the last time departments did an overhaul to see what positions they still need? Because these carry on the books for years and years. And I know, I mean, probably since before the invention of the computer, I don't know how far back these go. But did we ever evaluate why we carry all these vacant positions? And when, when does that happen? And does that ever get reported to council? Lenore Reed, uh, DCAO Finance and Administration. I'm going to speak for my portfolio because we do that on an annual basis. And before we can hire or request to recruit a position, we go through that because I don't want to fill positions just because we had the position before. We need to fill positions strategically, and we, are, we review every year on an annual basis before we do a retreat to review the plan as to what we have and what we need because we may need more positions. As a matter of fact, finance did a review and we came up with the fact that they need more positions and I said do not ask for more positions within this budget. Let's look for ways that we can find more efficiencies 
and let's look at what we're doing and why we're doing it and what we need and where we need it. And you probably heard Mr. Wax say that they've moved some things around because we have to do that analysis. We would be negligent in our duties if we did not. We can't fill 19 positions in procurement because we've always had 19 positions. We may need 22 positions, but we would have to come with the defense for that. We may need 15 positions, but we would have to come with the defense for that as well. So when you come to the conclusion that you need 15, do you purge the four off your book? Or do they just remain on the book? No, if we would come to that position, we won't keep them unfilled. We would say we no longer need these FTEs within this department. So where does that ever happen? And I have never seen anybody say we don't need these positions. So we're... It hasn't happened in my portfolio since I've been here. So there's never been an instance where you've seen a need to reduce your force? We have reduced it in certain areas, and I'm going to speak to finance and IT because they're my largest department. And I can say, we'll say that we don't need all of that here, but we do need more there. And so we'll ask for a reclassification of positions. But we have not, I have not seen in my portfolio, and we've done the review on an annual basis where we had a need to reduce the number of FTEs. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Burrell. Um, Ms. Reed, Ms. Garland, did you have yes, additional comments? Um, yes, to further uh, address the question about the review of FTEs for the departments, um, during the budget process, twice a year, departments review their need for FTEs. Sometimes FTEs are sent to other departments. From, so if the department doesn't have an, a need for an FTE, they can send it to another department. But if I were ru- running a business, I'd be looking to reduce how many people I carry on my payroll. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that being the mindset within city. I understand Hall. what you're saying. I understand, and that's a good question. There's a genuine need, and um, just realize that all vacancies are not funded. So right. I think the departments are working to fill the funded positions the them. best they can. Those positions that are no longer needed do get transferred to other departments based on needs of other departments. Let's take some positions off the book. That's what I'm asking. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I understand. Okay. Thank you. And don't transfer them around. <laughs> Just let's reduce the force if Thank you. possible. Thank you, Ms. Garland. Ms. I mean, Reed. I cannot oh. imagine in the entire operation thousands of people that there's never an opportunity to have a net reduction in the number of employees we carry on our book. I just, that doesn't happen in the business world. So how it happens in city government is concerning. Duly noted. I see people shaking their heads, but it just, it really is concerning. Okay. Thank you. The next item uh, for us is um, we've completed presentations and I've asked staff to share the uh, amendments that we have uh, received to date. We will, just so that everyone has that information, and uh, we will on the 15th begin in earnest to uh, balance the proposed budget but at least at this point to share what uh, has been submitted. So, Ms. Brown. Good morning. I'm sorry, Mr. Jackson. Good morning. Uh, In your packet, you should have uh, a copy of the revised amendments proposals. 
and it's also on display on the screen here. Uh, currently, we have a total expenditure increase of $618,564, with only a uh, expenditure decrease totaling 65000 And I will walk you through the new uh, revisions uh, based on the proposals that were provided to staff within the past week. We have a few uh, new decreases beginning with Mr. Hilbert. And the first one is a decrease of 2178000 for uh, a decrease in general fund cash funding for CIP. And this is involving the transfer to the debt service fund. Madam President, yeah. are we going to go just summarize these or are we allowed to ask questions? Um, the intent here was to make sure that everybody received and was aware of what has been submitted to date, and then the actual decisioning and discussion would be on the 15th. But at least to have you have what has been entered. Thank you. Yes, these are current uh, proposals. And no, again, one second. I'm sorry. And finish getting the distribution. And just for fun, Madam President, if we could just get a quick brief on what we're being handed. Um, yes. Just, I mean, just. Absolutely. These are the amendments that have been, and actually they were submitted by close of business on Friday of last week. Is that correct? These are the amendments we have. We will begin in earnest our discussion and deliberation about them on April 15th, but just wanted everyone to have what has been submitted. Okay, if you would proceed. Yes. Um, just a quick question. I'm looking at the... $2.178 million, and that looks like the amount that we thought we were transferring to paving projects in the current fiscal year. Is that? This wouldn't be the $2 million that is from the fund balance. This would be the actual additional cash that they want to put into paving. Okay. And just to also clarify, we um, send it. We also passed out some additional attachments. Um, one is Ms. As Mr. Hilbert is proposing to do a one and a half percent cut, we just gave an example of what that would look like. We also passed out um, the properties that are exempt by designation, and also a response we received from the utilities department with regard to the rate increases, just so that you have that as support material as Charles continues to go through the proposed amendments. Yes, Ms. Gore. Um For the non-departmental. I know some of those are passed through enterprise or like the IT function. Mm -hmm. Are we, that won't, that won't come back into the general fund if we cut it, correct? If we cut the transfer to DIT? Like if we do a one and a half percent, it looks like non-departmental was. It is in there. It's on here, but I'm wondering if we're really looking for a 1.5% reduction in that line, are we looking at deeper cuts for other 
we well, would this have- is Mr. Hilbert's proposal. So at this point, I get I get that. But if if a big portion of these are we would zero to- out themselves, if it's an em- enterprise. Then are we looking at cutting? You have to go through non-departmental and look at all the things that are in non-departmental to end up cutting 1.4. But he just kind of gave a blanket right now. But then in some of those areas, we would have to go dive a little bit deeper to actually identify, especially with non-departmental, what line items are going to be decreased. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a decrease to the transfer to risk management or the transfer to IT, it could be. It's just that's not what this is proposing. This is just right now saying that non-departmental would be reduced by the 1.4. Okay. And and, and Madam President, excuse me, I I don't know if this is the point in time in which we get into um, a discussion on this, but since we're here, I'm just going to share, you know, my particular thoughts on this and just – really caution us as we move forward. This is, by definition, an inequitable distribution of resources. Um, Departments that provide services to those who need it the most or areas within our city that have been historically neglected uh, should not face a budget reduction uh, with this type of austerity. And And I would, again, just reiterate that this is a member's proposal. And, and, it and has I understand not that. I understand that. I understand approved. that. But I'm just, I'm just as, yeah. as, as a matter of process, mm-hmm. um, you know, just as a matter of process to understand what's been presented to us and what's before us. And we have a responsibility as individual uh, counselors and as a collective body to really understand the impact of what it is that we're proposing. And that's the deep dive that will start on the 15th. And, and, but, but again, it's more than just a deep dive. It, it's really a process by which, a praxis by which we develop how we approach uh, budgeting. And, and again, the, the one thing I'm going to continue to, uh, to champion and voice is just the equitable distribution of resources. And so with that, Madam President, I thank you for allowing me to, uh, to share. Duly noted. Mr. Jackson. Okay. Okay, again, with the uh, proposal for Mr. Hilbert, we have a transfer to debt service decrease uh, in the amount of $2,178,000. I have a question about this. We're going over it right now, right? We're just informing you of what's been proposed. We're not making any decisions about it. It's just to let you know what council members have put in as amendments. On April 15th, we will go through these, and we will have to decision whether or not the the majority will support or not support any of these amendments. So we're not doing that part today. All right, so if we want to add our names to it, when do we do that? There's like a few things I saw on here that I had spoken about it, but... You can just email uh, Ms. Brown if you would like to add your name to uh, any of the proposed items here. And then it will appear when it comes back on April 15th. All right, thank As you. It, okay. Okay. Uh, the next decrease is Mr. Hilbert again uh, for, the sc- for schools. And this is to reduce uh, school general fund contribution by the amount of $6 million $110,762. Okay. Okay. Uh, again, Mr. Hilbert, uh, this is citywide. 
uh, reduction of 1.5% across the board for all general fund departments, agencies, and offices uh, in the amount of $7,509,951. Okay, and next we will go to the new uh, revenue proposals. Uh, again, Mr. Hilbert, uh, his first proposal is to reduce the real estate tax rate from $1.29 to $1.20 and in the amount of $21,250,163. Next is Mr. Hilbert again. Uh, this has increased the cigarette tax from 50 cents to 80 cents per pack, and the cost would be $1,830,000. Again, this is for an increase in revenue. Next is Mr. Hilbert, uh, increase in emissions tax from 7% to 12% with a revenue increase of $1,890,571. And the last revenue proposal is Mr. Hilbert, is to repeal tax exemptions by designation and the amount of $1,166,364. Mr. Jones. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. I, I'm just, I understand we're just sharing what these are, but I, I just feel compelled to just, as it, as it comes, uh, to just go on record. Um, increase in cigarette tax from 50 cent to 80%, 80 cent per, uh, per pack. When you look at who is, um, who actually smokes, when you look at the demographics there, uh, again, to just, throw that out there to just increase it to that extent negates the fact, or really it just supports the fact that you're targeting a particular uh, group of individuals. And so studies show who smokes, studies shows uh, 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 what some of those key indicators are. And for us to propose that or for that to be proposed, um, I just feel it's it's – it's targeted towards a particular group of individuals. And so with the, I just but want to go on the record, Madam President. Duly noted. And again, uh, members can propose uh, any amendments. It is incumbent upon this body to make final decision. That's It's simply a proposal. I think I saw Ms. Larson first and then you, Ms. Trammell. Um, can we just get a little background on the, the last one, the tax exemptions by designation? Yes, please. Um, so currently there are two, um, I guess, areas for exemption. There's exemption by classification, which is at the state level, what they say must be exempt. But then there's also a exemption by designation, which is steps that previous councils took by ordinance to exempt certain properties, a lot, of, from, a lot being nonprofits. And so this would be going back and repealing those exemptions and then coming on the tax roll for having to pay real estate taxes. Yes, Ms. Larson. Okay, just to follow up, um, how, how often does the finance department follow up with these addresses or um, 
entities to make sure that they are still doing what the original ordinance said they were supposed to be doing? Like, when's the last time this this information has been verified that they're providing housing and supportive services to residents with traumatic brain injury, for example? I believe it's done in the assessor's office. Um, I'll have to check with Richie to see exactly when the last time, but I think there's a requirement that it be done um, maybe annually, that the, in, that the entity has to submit something to the assessor's office to show that they are still operating for what the exemption was provided for. Okay. So we'll get that information back. And just one more. Mm-hmm. So all of these, when they were approved, it looks like um, a lot of them happened in 2012. Was there some? And it's just forever? Yes, the entity gets the exemption as long as they are still operating for what they were given the exemption for. Um, A lot of them were done um, around 2012, but then at one point council took action to put a moratorium on giving any exemptions, so that's why you don't see any more recent. Okay. Okay, so there's a piece of legislation that council voted on to not designate anymore. Okay. And is there some sort of clause in the legislation that, um, for the ones that have it, that says this is subject to, a, you know, annual review or, uh, or could be repealed at any time or anything like that? We can get the specifics, uh, Ms. Larson. I'm looking at Mr. Jackson. I suspect so, but I don't rec- – I know the mor- about the moratorium the last time we did a bunch of them. Mr. Jackson, if you have that, fine. If not, if you would be prepared to share that with us on the 15th, that would be helpful. Yeah, at this point, okay. the only thing I can confirm with confidence is that there is a moratorium in effect mm-hmm. in the city ordinance. Um, beyond that, I would need to go back and actually – reread the ordinances. I haven't looked at those for a while, okay. but I will do that. Okay. Ms. Larson? Thank you. Thank you. I think it was Ms. Trammell and then Mr. Jones and then Ms. Gray. Madam President, I too want to go on the record to talk about um, the increased cigarette tax from what the mayor has proposed from 50 cents to 80, 80 cents. I mean, I don't I mean, people got to realize that these businesses on Midlothian and on Jefferson Davis and Broad Rock, well, especially let me just talk about Midlothian and, and Jefferson Davis, it's not even six blocks away, and they, and they will be in the counties. They will go there and buy their cigarettes, buy their gas, buy their snacks, buy their food, because more and more of these convenience stores are now offering, you know, lunches and dinners and stuff like that. And it's going to put these small little convenience stores out of business. I mean, and not only that, I really feel in my heart, and I don't think, I mean, with all the calls that I'm getting from the retirees from Philip Morris that still live in in my district off of, you know, Jefferson Davis, Davy Gardens, and all of that, um, Blackwell Oak Grove, that they are afraid that they will, you know, probably move out of the city because every year they have to to come here and, and beg and 
and try to present their case that we should not be raising the tax on them because it, it could potentially – I have 4,000 people in that area that work at Philip Morris. I mean, they will eventually have to cut them back or maybe move out. If we keep doing this to them every year after year, talk about increasing the cigarette tax, and it's not right. Well, I – in this case, again, I just remind us it's, it's merely a proposal. Uh, it is not something that's been approved. We get to decision I on that. I understand, but yes. I, I appreciate my colleague for bringing it up, too, because, sure. you know, the, the press is here. Next thing you know, it'll be out that, you know, it could formally – it might increase from 50 cents now where a council person is trying to increase it to 80 cents a pack. So yes. I just wanted to go on record to say that I, I'm, not, I'm not for this. Okay. Ms. Gray, and then was that the order? Okay. I'm Mr. Jones. Okay, thank you. Um, and I'm sorry, let me <laughs> – that, that is a real issue. I mean, we're talking about 50 to 80. That is going to drive them across – I mean, I'm right at the county line. Uh, a, a lot of my people are. And so I'm not saying whether I'm for or against, um, but, again – Understanding how this impacts our city is key, how it impacts. These are a ton of small businesses where they're going in um, to not just get, if they're getting a pack of cigarettes, Reba, they're, they're also getting um, chips. They're getting, and, and again, we're talking about food deserts. They're not just getting snacks. They're getting dinner. They're getting lunch. They're getting breakfast. And for Areas that border a large portion of the eighth, large portion of the ninth, we border the counties, and they will, if you take it up that high, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to impact more than just cigarettes. We're going to lose sales tax dollars, and I'm going to see services that we can get in the city go away, and it's going to drive our people to the counties. They, they, they just will. And so, I mean, a lot of our residents, they go and do, get groceries in the county uh, at Kroger's because we don't have uh, the type of options in the city. That piece. Secondly, um, uh, uh, Ms. Brown, uh, we're talking, and I'm just trying to make sure I understand properties exempt by designation. So we're talking about Bliley Manor, uh, uh, RCAP, Virginia Museum. Uh, endowment fund of Memorial uh, Memorial Child, Boaz and Ruth. They would pretty uh, much be nonprofits for the most part. But, but I'm just trying to understand, you know, who those who you know who those entities are. Um, Virginia League of Planned Parenthood, um, because again, as we propose things, I'm sorry, Councilor Trammell's right. It's not going to go out as just one individual on council. It's going to say this is what council is looking to do, and I've got to field phone calls based upon what one person proposed and, and this I, but, but 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 again so 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 then that's the only reason why I'm stating it now for the record then the other piece is again looking at how we again I, I understand it's one individual counselor but I wish he was here so he could hear from us what we think about his increases and, and to and, and let me just take a breath for a moment. And between the coffee, the latte, and the Red Bull, I'm on fire right now. <laughs> and, and duly noted, Mr. Jones, this <laughs> so is again. I'm trying to dial it back. But, but, but honestly, I mean, as as we as we look to as we look to decide who will 
and won't pay taxes, who will and won't be impacted by taxes, we've got to look very carefully and move forward very, very carefully because you can't tax some and not the others. You can't hold some to the fire and not the others because we have programs by which um, we've got 20 mil sitting in right now. We, 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 we do, and we can go get that today if we wanted to end that. It would cause a whole other stir. But as, as an ethic, if we're going to end properties that are exempt by designation that, that we willfully gave and, and end it or propose to end it, then there are others out there as well that we have to honestly address and have a conversation about. And if that's the fifth, and, and again, I don't even know if this is, the time in which we do it because we're up against the gun right now to have a conversation of, you know, what do we want to tax? How do we want to tax? What programs do we want to begin and end? We're up on, you know, we are against a timeline right now. And so anything we discuss, it's going to be in light of a particular deadline that we have to hit where, in my opinion, we need time to discuss what do we want to do as a council? What do we want to support how is it impacting the city? Um, because, again, we have tax abatement programs. We have tax relief programs that I feel we need to get the information out on. Every person in this city, especially on the south side, that they are eligible for this program, there needs to be a push by the city, not just us as individual counselors. There needs to be a push by the city to let our seniors know and to help them get enrolled. I'm sorry. I had a grandmother in her 90s that lived on North Avenue, 3603 North Avenue. And man, it to you know, she didn't have access to particular programs because she was just 90. And and she didn't know about them and she couldn't go go, you know, go actively engage them. And yeah, as a grandson, maybe I was a bad grandson for not trying to explore more uh about what was available to her, but to be sandwiched to care for children, to care for, you know, aging parents and grandparents, that's a difficult task. So as a city, we've got to do a better job of, you know, allowing the least of these to who may have not engaged all the programs that are available to them. We have to do a much better job uh, as council and as administration, as an administration to help individuals get and take part in these programs, because these are the families, these are the people that are having issues with uh, paying their taxes and making sure uh, that they're able to live in those homes and pass those homes on uh, without incurred debt. So, so thank Mr. You, Mr. Jones, thank you. Again, uh, these are proposals. These will be fully discussed. The administration has also received these amendments. They will have opportunity to share with us impact implications for each of the agencies. But these are proposals. So, but, but Madam President, I, I think I, again, I, I, I just, hear just, you. Just, just, just one thing, you know, because I know Councillor Addison. We've talked about this. How do we sit down and discuss a process? What's important to us? What we want to focus on? And I don't know if. Budget time is the time for us to have that lengthy conversation. So we're coming as a body to say, here's what we feel is the best for the body, not just individuals. So these things can be vetted months ago. So 
Thank and, you. And, and I agree. And I would, you know, look towards uh, GovOps. We almost as soon as we put this budget to bed, we will begin deliberations and discussions about the next biennial budget. We have opportunity to uh, frame a process that allows us to get in front of that next biennial budget. So um, I'll throw that back to the two of you to be thoughtful about that as we look to gear up for next year. Ms. Gray? So I think just in summation, what we're all trying to say is that there are unintended consequences to everything that we do, but we haven't set priorities for council. If priority one is affordable housing, then we need to consider, you know, the eviction program is being funded by a tax increase on our elderly folks. So if you're one day behind, you don't qualify for that abatement program. So maybe we should look at catching some people up so they can get into the program. I don't know. But also with respect to these properties that are in the exempt categories, um, we've got the Virginia Museum. They, they'd see close to a $4 million hit unexpected, unexpectedly in their budget. Or the um, programs, if opioid addiction is one of our focuses, this would heavily pull the rug out from under Caritas, the Healing Place, um, several organizations that provide treatment for substance abuse and addiction, um, Good Samaritan Ministries, you know. Um, if we're focused on helping keep people afloat and we're going to send a tax bill to the Friends Association for their East End Child Care. Yeah, I understand, but but I, I just you. this is for food for thought. Yes, everything we do has absolutely an equal and opposite reaction. So let's consider where we where we're looking to find funding. What really is a priority for us, you know, and what we can afford to do with what we have and and not yank the rug out of programs that are mm -hmm. showing results and keeping keeping things steady for us versus um, trying to start new ventures for issues that may or may not be um, putting band-aids or, or treating symptoms and not the cause. Thank you. Mr. Jackson? Okay. And the last subset of proposals are the utility uh, revenues. Uh, we have four by Councilmember Gray, which would eliminate each of the different utility rates, uh, beginning with the uh, gas, 3.5%, at $2.8 million. Water utility, 4% at a cost or decrease of $2.4 million. Wastewater, 4%. $3.3 million, and the last would eliminate the stormwater utility rate, 4%, uh, with a reduction in $472,000, Okay. Thank you. Those are the uh, proposed amendments that we have received thus far. Uh, I expect that we'll have more by the April 15th meeting. Uh, as I indicated before, these have been shared with the administration, and so we will uh, 
provide opportunity for them to uh, share impact uh, implications for the agency, for the organization overall. With that, uh, at this point, we have completed presentations, reviewed the proposed amendments, and uh, there is not now a need for an afternoon session. And so uh, we will now stand adjourned. Thank you.